Well, if you're visiting, we're just super glad that you're here with us. So this is just very simply a worship service. And it's a worship service where we worship one person uh, who is Jesus. He is God's perfect son. And uh, we worship Jesus three kind of main ways. We sing songs that declare who he is, declare what he's done, and, and namely taking on the wrath of God towards us in our sin and giving us life in his name because he lived the life for us, died the death for us, rose again victorious over it, and offers his Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin to those who trust in him. So we, we worship him because of what he's done, and we talk about that, and we sing about that. We also worship Jesus by studying the Bible. Uh, the Bible is his written revelation that he's given us so that we have all that we need to know for life and godliness. So we are uh, studying the gospel according to Luke. We started it last week. Very exciting uh, study. I'm just excited to, to kick this off, really get rolling now uh, that we did the, the prologue last week and all that God might do in us to shape us. I can't promise how long we'll be in Luke. Um, it is a fairly long gospel, but it is a rich gospel, and I'm excited as we look at Jesus and consider his works, consider his life, consider his teachings, all that we might know about him, that we'd be more transformed by that. Um, and we also worship Jesus by giving. Uh, if this is your home, if this is what you consider your church family, you know we give at the black box in the back, and uh, many give online as well. So thanks for your generosity and giving uh, to move the mission forward. So um, if you have your Bibles, grab them and go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be. We're actually going to cover 20 verses this morning. I know. We're going to cover the four. You guys are laughing because you think I'm only going to make five in and then stop, but I'm serious. We're going to get to verse 25 because this is a really important section. It's more narrative. It kind of moves along. It tells a an awesome story of the forerunner to this one who will save and redeem the peoples of the world, who is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be starting in verse 5 and just a minute, but just to catch up to speed briefly, if you missed last week, really important you, you listen to that because we did a lot of groundwork as to who was Luke, why did Luke write this gospel, who was he writing it to, and here are kind of the, the few things you need to know uh, for the cliff notes, okay? Luke is a guy who, who really resonated with me when I studied the gospels in seminary, I'm, I'm still there and I'm doing the tortoise wins the race, you know, slowly but surely I'll, I'll get through, but when I was looking at all the gospels and studying them, this, this was the one that most resonated with me. Uh, because I was someone who, through my college experience, was being taught errant things about truth, about God, about Jesus. Uh, and so I started really reading the Bible, wanted to see what God said about himself, what truth really meant. Started looking at either other avenues about people who were just sharing crazy talk about Jesus. Is that true? Is that not true? Uh, and God revealed to me through looking at the life of the teachings of Jesus that these were true. And as I learned them... Um, I wanted to tell others also, and that's really all Luke has done. Luke is a man, very simply, who was kind of skeptical about the life and teachings of Jesus. He learns the life and teachings of Jesus, and then he actually wants everyone to be certain of the life and teachings of Jesus. And not just all of us in general, but this guy's Theophilus, who he writes to in the first four verses. He's a high-ranking Roman official, and he's writing to him saying, Hey, I know that you've been kind of intrigued by this. I know you're unsure about some things, so let me compile a narrative. Let me get accounts. Let me get journals. Let me get eyewitnesses. Let me get all of this together so that I can now lay before you why you can be certain of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he doesn't just want Theophilus to know that, he wants all who read this to know this. And so this is profound, this is important, this is necessary. And so if you're in here and you're kind of seeking out who Jesus is, you're not really sure who he is, this, this is a guy that you would love. Luke's a guy you would appreciate. Luke's a guy that you would love to sit down with and chat with and praise God in his grace. He's given us this account. And it's amazing because Luke's account, Luke actually writes more in the New Testament than even Paul. Uh, it's a 52-chapter, two-volume work that spans 60 years, and he writes all about the starting of the forerunner of this Jesus Christ through his whole life, teachings, preaching, and ministry, to the very end of the gospel reaching the Roman Empire. So he covers a lot of ground. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot for us to know just in this one gospel. And, and let me quickly, before we read, just mention something, because um, I don't know how you felt lately uh, in regards to... Um, just what's swirling around, around us as believers. And it's not just uh, the political uh, debates and approvals that are going on. Um, it's, it's the massive, wicked, horrific persecution of brothers and sisters uh, who are real flesh and blood people, who have real families, uh, who are being massacred in ways that are um, horrific and evil, right? No other way to put it. 
Um, and, and we also have Baltimore happening and Ferguson that happened and injustice and unrest and fracture and lack of peace. And, right? so, so we have, we have all these things kind of swirling around us. Uh, and I, for whatever reason, that was really just uh, weighing on me this week, just, just the, the weight of, of looking at the world, looking at the brokenness, looking at uh, all that is happening, and looking at Nepal with uh, the earthquake there. Um, and, and, and here's what I found myself saying and rejoicing in all week as I, as I considered all those things. Praise God for Luke chapter 1. Right? Like, praise God that he is active in it and sees the issues, isn't surprised by it, and actually always had a plan to come and pull back darkness and bring justice and bring wickedness to rest, to be a judge, to be a justifier, to heal the broken, to restore, to redeem, to make new what went wrong. So I said, man, praise God that we have Luke chapter 1. I mean, praise God that, that this is the announcement that, hey, Jesus is going to invade human history, and this is the reason he's coming. Because you, if you have a brain, you know something's broken with the world. Right? You, you know something went wrong. I don't care where you land religiously or spiritually. You know that something needs to be fixed. You know there needs to be ultimate justice. You know there needs to be ultimate truth. You know there needs to be ultimate reconciliation. You know there needs to be ultimate freedom from fracture and all of these things. And it's all wrapped up. Our hope is all wrapped up in Jesus. Now, here's why this was so comforting for me as I thought about just the wake of the world today is, number one, this, we live in no different day than throughout redemptive history. There were wicked, evil, pagan people who were massacring the people of God 2,000 years ago. I mean, just, just study the Assyrians, okay? I mean, so, so in one sense, this is nothing new, but here, here's the other sense. If you look to the end of Luke chapter 1, Luke says something fascinating. He says that, that the sunrise will break and the Most High will come. Okay, here's what he's doing. He's alluding to Jesus. And here's why there's that language of him being a sunrise, him being the light of the world. You ever wonder why, why, why we call it that? Because it has been dark for ages for Israel. Okay, it has been dark with oppression. I mean, just think about the whole from the calling of Abraham all the way through. You have 400 years in enslavement in Egypt. They get delivered from that. Then there's like captivity. They get delivered from that. Then there's a separation of kingdoms. Then there's exile. Then they come back. Then they're, they're oppressed by the Greeks and then the Romans. So this, this blessing and cursing, it has been dark for ages for the people of Israel. And here's the thing. Luke's saying, hey, the sunlight's coming. Like the sunlight's going to break through and shatter the darkness that you're seeing with all the oppression of God's people. And so we can relate incredibly close to the point of Luke writing this. He's going, hey, hey, light, the, and, and we know the light came. That's why if you read the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, he says that the sun will come with healing in its beams. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus is going to come and, and heal and mend the darkness that these people have been in. And it's going to, that's, that, that's, that's super important for you to understand this gospel. As you kind of see what he's writing about, okay? Super important that you begin to understand what Israel was like, this long darkness that was sustained by this promise that one day sunlight would come through, Right? One day the sun would rise and the darkness that hung over Israel, and not just Israel, but the whole world would be seen and there would be healing. And so, so God knew that he would always have this one that was sent, that God's going to do something. It's always been his plan to rescue and redeem out of darkness Israel as well as the world. And so that's how the Old Testament ends. So, so we all know that God's been silent for about 400 years. They're wondering if he's, if he's faithful to this promise. They wonder if this, this sunrise, this sun, this light's going to come and pierce this darkness. Now they're feeling really oppressed by the Roman government. That's really what they want. You can even do a fun study on the, on the, on the week of um, the Holy Week where he rides in. These people did not want him as a savior from their sin. He wanted them to deliver them from Roman oppression. That, that, that's why they were saying, oh, Hosanna. They weren't actually wanting him as king of their heart. Okay, and so, so we're going to see that, that what, what Luke's going to announce, what Luke is setting the stage for is huge. 
especially in light of what we're going to walk into the moment we leave these doors today with utter wickedness, utter sin, utter chaos. Praise God that this son is here and that he came and that that is our song, that is our conversation, that is our message, that is what we herald, that is what we share. So Luke wastes no time out of the gate. He reveals this forerunner who's going to be the one, the one who's going to actually mark and declare who this Savior of the world will be. And it starts with an ordinary man, and he gets a crazy promise. This guy, Zechariah, look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Okay, remember, what is Luke concerned about? Luke's concerned about credibility. So he doesn't say, hey, once upon a time in a land far, far, far away, there were these people. No, what does he do? He takes you and puts you in human history. He says, in the day of Herod. Okay, he gives you a time. He gives you a date. He gives you a place. So he says, in the days of Herod. This is Herod the first reign. Now, who is Herod the first? Herod the first is this guy who, remember, he heard that a king was going to be born in Bethlehem. So he has every kid under two years old murder, this mass killing over all babies under two because he, he was threatened by a king being born that wasn't him. This is the same Herod. And so in this day, in the time of Herod the first reign, he says there's this priest named Zechariah. Now, he's just your average priest. He's one of 18,000 priests. Okay, so he's just a common, ordinary priest, doing his duties, going about his day. And there's some particulars according to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They can't have kids. Now, this is growing up in a culture that looks at you as cursed if you could not conceive children. They think that you were being judged by God and you must have done some heinous sin that's ill-forgivable. Ill so you bet there's guilt on them, shame on them. They can't conceive, they can't have a son. And according to physics, she's barren. And on top of that, she's really advanced in years. Now you're going, well, how old is that? I don't know, it's old. Right? I mean, the only other time that they say someone's advanced in years, that's Abraham and Sarah. They think that they were 100 and maybe 90 years old. So that gives you a gauge as to how old probably they were. And, and, and here is just this, this life they're living. And Zechariah is a priest. He's doing his common duties. They mediated for God to the people. They gave sacrifices. And, and we're going to see this amazing promise happen. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as a priest, Zechariah is doing his duties before God. When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot. Lot's not a person. There is a guy named Lot, but he means like drawn straws. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so Zechariah basically wins the ticket to Disney. I'm serious. You have to understand the weight of this moment for Zechariah. Okay, because here's just kind of like the, 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 the basic thing. There are, I think, 23, 24 divisions of priests. So that's why it says when his division was called on duty according to custom, there would be a lot, there'd be a drawing. And here's the thing. Every year, only two priests got to go down to the temple and, and do the the burning of incense in the temple, which was this aroma that was lit. Okay, and I'll explain what that is in a minute, but it was to symbolize the prayers of the people that would stand outside praying to God. So, so they get this two times a year, they get to do this, and it was such an honor, it was such a high thing that, man, if, if your name was drawn, you could never do it again in your life. Okay, so, and it just happens by drawn straws. So some priests could live their whole life and never go and do this. And, and Zechariah, just a common, ordinary priest, gets his name drawn. He's going, I get to go to the temple? I mean, I get to walk into a place I've never been, into a place I've never seen. Not in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in there. So he's kind of JV, he's getting to varsity, right? So he, he gets to walk in, he can do that, he can walk almost in there, he's going to light this incense. This is a massive day for Zechariah. I mean, he just got the phone call. You're on the team, bro. You're recruited. This is huge. 
And so this lot was drawn, and he gets his name picked, and here's what Zechariah would have done. It's, it's most likely the evening shift. They go in the morning and the evening to do it. And the reason we know it's probably the evening shift is that, that's when the most people would come outside and pray. It says there was a multitude outside praying. So it's probably the evening. Here's what he would do. He would grab this massive bowl, golden bowl. Okay, he probably had to bear hug it. And he would get burning hot coals. And he would have something so he could put the coals in the bowl. And then he would walk this big golden bowl through the holy place. Okay, a place he had never been. A place that he had never seen. He would get almost to the veil, the holy of holies, where the presence of God was. But man, he couldn't go in there. Don't even peek. Okay, he knew Leviticus 10 that it was like fatal. Okay, read the Old Testament. People's fingers touched the ark and they died. Okay, so he knew this was a big deal. And he would take it, there would be this big golden uh, altar in front. And he would put the coals in there and he would light it. He would light incense on it and there would be smoke that would fill the temple. The aroma would smell good and all that would symbolize the prayers of the people outside. And then he would leave. That's it. It was quick. Okay? You don't take a nap. You don't play cards. Like, that's it. You go in, you do your duty, and you leave. So this is big for Zechariah. And in this weighty moment, in the middle of Zechariah doing this, the living God of the universe speaks for the first time. God breaks his silence. After 400 years. Okay, so he already got the, the, the winning lottery ticket. Okay, now the God of the universe is going to speak to him through an angel. Look at what he says in verse 11. After 400 years, Malachi's promise, the Old Testament, the sun is going to come, going to be healing in its beams. Okay, they don't hear anything from God. Is he faithful to his promise? Where is he gone? Has he remembered us as a people? Does he care about us? And look what happens in verse 11. And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Natural response. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay, hold on. Here's what's happening. Okay, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, okay? They're both from the line of Aaron. That's the only line where all the priesthood came from. So Elizabeth grew up in a, in a family that were all priests. Okay, Zechariah's a priest. They married together. So the priestly duties, the priestly customs are very common to them. And they have been begging God for a son. They'd love to have a legacy. They'd love to pass it down. They can't do it. They're being shamed by the Jewish public because they believe that you've been cursed by God if you're barren. So they're living in a place where is God hearing our prayers? Is he, is he listening to us? They probably feel a bit beat up, a bit bruised. He goes in. He gets this winning lottery ticket. He feels like he's at Disney. He can't believe he's doing this. He walks into a place he's never seen. He's never been. He lights the incense and all of a sudden an angel shows up and tells him, hey, your prayers and pleas have been answered. You're going to have a son. And not just a son. This son's going to be an extraordinary man. Like, he, he's going to come like Elijah came. He's going to make a dent for the people of Israel. A profound impact. Man, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb of your wife. He's going to be a prophet of God, and he's going to be the one who's going to set the pace and declare the living Savior, the sunrise that's coming to smash and obliterate darkness. He's the one who's going to be the forerunner to tell everyone about him. Insane. Insane. In case you're trying to, like, wonder what you're feeling, it's insane. I mean, this is, and it's probably right as he's leaving, Right? I mean, he's lit the incense. This is a quick deal. This isn't long. He goes in. He does his duty. He turns around. He's walking out. And, hey, hey, over here. Right? In, I mean, just the whole scene is remarkable. The whole, the whole picture of this is staggering. 
just some common, ordinary guy going to do his priestly duty. And, and the God of the universe shows up to speak to him through his messenger, which is an angel. And it's amazing that you just see this. I mean, he, he says here he's going to bring you joy, your family joy. Not just you joy, not just your family joy. The ends of the earth are going to have joy because of who he is going to point to, which is this Jesus, this son that's going to rise and going to come. Now, let me... This, this is the greatest honor a Jewish family could possibly receive. I mean, are you tracking, like, wait, our son is going to be the one that is a forerunner to the Messiah? I mean, to the promised one? Like, this is huge. Lots happening for Zechariah. It's like 10 birthdays and Christmas, all in one moment for Zechariah. Now, remember, he's still in the temple. <laughs> this is supposed to be a quick process. It's supposed to happen. Right? He's supposed to get out. You can bet that Zechariah, he knows the Old Testament. He, he's read the times that, that angels have showed up to people. And he knows the last time an angel appeared was to the prophet Zechariah, a different Zechariah, almost 500 years prior. And he's going, hold on, he's showing up to me now? Maybe it's the name. Right? Maybe he's like, man, I just got a sweet name. He knows the weight of this. And what's, it, what's his reaction? His reaction is what any rational human being would do and what every single person has done in the history of the Bible when they've laid their eyes on an angelic being. Utter fear. Panic. Almost terror. Some of you self-righteous people, oh man, I would have been like, hey man, high five. No, you wouldn't. You would have wet yourself and laid on the floor. I'm serious. Like, seriously. Like, when was the last time you saw a heavenly being? I mean, you would not go, hey, what's up, angel? You know what I'm saying? Like, you would not do that. So, so resonate with him, okay? You would not be the first one in, in human history that would react different from everyone else who had ever seen a, a, an angelic being. His reaction is fear, he panics, he's terrified. He's probably thinking, I mean, is this what's supposed to happen? I mean, I've never been in here before, but after you light incense, I mean, I read the Priests for Dummies book, and it never said that then an angel appears and talks to you. Now, if you do your study of angels, well, this, isn't a, this isn't a sermon on angels. If you do your study on angels, there, there are myriads and myriads and myriads and myriads. Okay, that's, that's hundreds of millions. Okay, here's the thing. You know only two are named in the Bible? Okay, one's Michael, sweet name. One's Michael, okay? Michael's the guy, he's the guy, anytime there's a fight that breaks out, Michael's there, okay? The other guy's Gabriel. He is your priority FedEx postman. <laughs> Serious. Anytime there's a message that needs to get across, he's, he's the one delivering it. And you can bet, Ze that's why he tells, he's going to tell him, I'm Gabriel. Zechariah knows who Gabriel is. He knows that he only brings mega massive, important messages. Gabriel's giving me this message? Wow. Must be important. And Gabriel's probably going, did you hear what I just said? About him? Or who your son would be? So Zechariah knew this. When there's a message like this, that your son is going to be the forerunner, to the Savior, Rescuer, and Redeemer of the world, Gabe's your man. Gabriel's bringing that message. Now, wouldn't you be so thankful for this angel's response? Don't be afraid. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to smite you. I'm not here to kill you on the spot. I mean, isn't that awesome how we see over and over? We're going to see again, right? Luke 2, the angel comes. What does he tell the shepherds? Don't be afraid. I come bearing good news. This angel's bringing good news. And this is good news for some of the first time in the history of Israel. It's real good news. 
And he's saying to him, I've heard your cry. I've heard your prayers. I've heard your pleas. Maybe you're in a season where you've been begging God and crying out to God. He'll answer when he wants to answer. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's all-knowing. He'll intervene when he's supposed to, when the time is right, when it, it meets his plan, not yours. Right? And here he shows up in his providence, in his plan that was always to be, that was always ordained. To Zechariah in the temple to tell him that your son will be a forerunner to this Messiah. And look at Zechariah's response. Unbelief. Verse 18. How shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you have not believed my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So God gives this extraordinary promise to Zechariah, and he's a skeptic, a religious skeptic. He's been doing stuff for God. He knows the Old Testament. He knows law. And even he struggles to believe God's word. And he says, here's what he does. God gives a promise, and then he gives every reason why it can't happen. But I'm, I'm, old. I'm old. I mean, have you seen my wife? She's really old. Right? She can't conceive. Right? That's what he's saying. She's advanced in years. So, so how is this thing going to happen? I mean, we've been barren for our life. And, and it's, it's amazing here because it's really, it's really pride. It's arrogance. He, he all of a sudden takes the place of God and says, this is why this shouldn't happen. This is why I can't believe that this would happen. And he says here, how will I know for certain? He's basically saying, I need more evidence. I, I need you to give me a little bit more reason to believe this. God's word is not enough to me, so I need you to give me some other little things I can hang my hat on to really believe God. I mean, that's our every day. Right? Here's the thing. God's word was not enough for Zechariah. He wanted more. That has always been the destruction of men. We don't take God as his word. We don't believe his word. We think that he meant to have footnotes everywhere, somewhere else, right? When he goes, no, I've, I've, I've given you it. I've spoken it. I've written it down. I've said it. It's good, it's profitable, it's all you need to know, but he wanted more evidence than the word of God. Now, before we get all judgmental on Zechariah and his unbelief, um, we all do this. God gives a promise in the word of God, and then we list out all the reasons for you that can't be true, okay? So let's just turn to one of the greatest promises I know in the Bible. I'm not saying it is the greatest one, I'm saying the, one of the greatest ones that, that I'm aware of in Romans 8. Real quick, Romans chapter 8, it's not on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, you can listen along. Romans chapter 8, go down to verse 31. Now, this is all, this promise is founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? That Jesus alone comes, dies a death for you, is your substitute, bears the wrath of God towards you in your sin, offers forgiveness, offers new life, grants you his Holy Spirit, that his love for you is not based upon anything that you do. It's not based upon any prayers you pray or religious activity or attendance in church or how many times you gather with Christian community. It's based upon Jesus alone, okay? Salvation is found. You are declared righteous before a holy God. God based upon nothing that you do and all on what Jesus has done. Okay, so this promise is based on that. Okay, this love of God towards us in Christ. Verse 31 says this, what then shall we say to these things, to those things I just said, the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who should call him guilty? Who should call him condemned? Right? Is it, it's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. There's your promise. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation, just in case he couldn't cover the cosmos, he wraps it all up, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, here's a promise to those of us in this room who are in Christ this morning. Now we can either believe this promise or list out all the reasons why you apparently have the one sin that no one else has that all of a sudden the cross of Jesus Christ couldn't kill and couldn't atone for, which is a further blasphemy of the cross of Christ and you not believing in it at all. Like, he just said that, that nothing can separate you if you're in Christ because he is the one keeping you reconciled to God. Like, he's the one who bought you. He's the one who atoned you. He's the one who rescued you. He's the one who died. He's the one who rose. He's the one whose blood was shed. So, so I feel like for, this will be a needed promise to instead of going, yeah, but... God, you don't know my history. You don't know my past sins. You don't know my past failures. You just keep filling in on the line all the reasons why this promise isn't true for you. It might be true for someone else, but it can't be true for you. And I'm telling you, you're not taking God at his word and it's unbelief and it's sin. And he's saying, I give promises. I take my word so seriously. That's why you're going to see he actually makes him mute. And a lot of people go, man, that's so harsh. No, God is serious about his word. He is so serious. He doesn't waste a breath. He doesn't waste a word. He doesn't waste a promise. And when he says, here's a promise, this is for you, we either choose to believe or have unbelief. And as he lays before this promise, how do you receive that promise this morning in this room? Condemnation? Unwavering guilt? Unbelief and that the cross was enough for you? That you somehow discovered what to do that could somehow be too deep and too vast and too wide for the love that apparently is wider than that and deeper than that and farther than that that's in the cross of Jesus Christ alone? That he had his son slaughtered for you. And not just slaughtered for you, but to sit under and bear the infinite weight of the wrath of God towards you in your sin and take it for you. And become your sin. Not just take your sin. And, and not just bury it and nail it into the cross, but to credit you his righteousness if you believe in him. Okay, so, guys, the promise of Zechariah is the same. The promises of God are the promises of God. And they carry the same weight. And God is faithful to his promise. And so, before we kind of get on Zechariah, it's good for us to consider in this moment, where do I need to have greater belief and not unbelief? Where am I not believing the promises of God towards me in Christ? a great question and I love this Gabriel responds a bit sarcastic to his unbelief he says I just told you the greatest news you'll ever hear that your prayers and pleas have been answered 
that you're going to have a son, that he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, the Savior, Redeemer, the sunrise that will come up and bring healing in its beams that was prophesied for years and years and years and years. And you're telling me you want more proof? There's an angel standing in your presence. He goes, dude, what else do you want? Like, I'm standing in the presence of God. I'm an angel. You were just panicked and fearful, and now you're all of a sudden wondering if this is enough. I just calmed you down from your hysteria, and now you're thinking, "Mm, now I'm not sure anymore. I mean, just look at the... Is an, is an angel of God showing up to you not enough? I mean, this is how I feel like we can resonate with Jesus. He goes, man, even if all the prophets come, even if Moses showed up and told them everything, they still wouldn't believe. All of us say, man, well, if I lived with Jesus and he actually told me this, if I was Zachariah and I actually saw an angel, then I'd believe his prophet. No, you wouldn't. It just shows the wickedness of our hearts. It just shows the unbelief in our hearts. And so in loving discipline he mutes him not in wrath in kind love because you're going to see later we're going to get 15 inspired verses of the bible that is basically a worship song from this guy's mouth so the loving discipline of god cultivates and ends in beautiful worship that's what god's discipline does right if you're in christ you're not under wrath you're under mercy and so we know that all the discipline he brings, all the kindness he brings, in that way, it might hurt, it might, might not feel good, but it's always, the, the point of it is always to lead you to greater worship in his name. And that's what we're going to see later. That's not this sermon, that's uh, two weeks. And so the angel shuts his mouth. And what's another reason why he shuts his mouth? I think because if you're told great news, what is the one thing you want to do? Tell everybody. And so this is almost a stagnant reminder for days to come of his unbelief, of the consequences of not believing God's word. And I know there's some of you guys in here who are saying, man, does this mean if I doubt his promise that God's going to blow me up or curse me, right? Or make me mute? I don't know, he could. (laughs) I don't think that's what he's going to do. I think what he will do is discipline you like he did Zechariah, lovingly, in his kindness, not in wrathful anger. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a son or daughter of his, well, wrath is already towards you. Wrath has not been appeased. Wrath has not been atoned for. And if you trust in Jesus Christ alone, then he welcomes you into his adopted family and you go from being a created person to a child an adopted child who where it's no longer under wrath it's under mercy and his discipline is kind and generous and loving i don't know how you view if you're a christian in this room i don't know how you view his discipline of you but as as any good father would discipline their children to allow greater life and greater health and greater joy that's what the god of the universe does and so no if you're in that place take heart that God's desire in disciplining you is so that it would cause greater worship to his name. And I think if we're all honest in this room, those of us who have walked through true discipline of God, because if you're a Christian, none of us have escaped that, because none of us are perfect. We still struggle with the residual effects of the fall. Man, God, every time he's graciously disciplined Mike Reed, has always, without fail, cultivated and produced greater worship of his name, greater love for his son, greater love for his works, greater love for his deeds, greater love for how he runs the universe, realizing I can't run the universe, right? And so that's, that's what we pray for, and that's what's going to happen in Zechariah, which is, is a beautiful thing. Meanwhile, look at what's going on outside. Remember, these people are still praying. <laughs> the people outside still waiting for him to come out. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Okay, so naturally, everyone outside is going, where's Zechariah? I mean, listen, everyone knows that when you go in, you get out. And so they're going, okay. Now, the first thought in everyone's mind probably is he's being judged by God. Probably. 
Because no one just hangs out in the temple unless God is there doing something. Maybe they're going, man, maybe he tried to peek in the Holy of Holies. I don't know. Man, how big is that bowl? I mean, how long does it take to light incense? I mean, maybe it's longer than I thought. Maybe, Maybe he fell asleep. I don't know, right? I mean, these are the things that seriously are probably going through their head as they're, they're, they're praying. They're kind of confused. It's probably very distracting. And eventually Zechariah comes out, and it's custom every time the priest would exit to give a benediction. If you read number six, one of the most popular benedictions in the scriptures, that says they would exit the temple. They would give a benediction to the people. Not tonight, folks. No benediction coming. Zechariah walks out, they're expecting a benediction, and I love this part. He didn't have enough time to learn sign language, but he's got a great heart, according to the text. So he starts just trying to mimic signs. He's trying to show them that, I don't know, an, an angel, an angel was talking to me. You, you picture this, it's just crazy, and they're not, they're not figuring it out, right? He's like, man, they're, they're, you can't really figure it out. I mean, they're, they're trying to explain, he's going, oh, wait, that's more like a bird, so I don't this like angel right I don't I'm going home right like he just eventually he just goes home because he can't he he can't figure out how to communicate this he's frustrated and and then it says they they know that he saw a vision you're going well how do they know that he saw a vision listen I don't know what you looked like the last time you saw an angelic being you're probably pale your whole countenance had changed he probably came out looking like a ghost I mean everyone's seen him would have gone man something happened in there man he saw something because the Zechariah went in there isn't the same guy who came out. And so he goes home. Verse 24. We don't know a lot what happened in the meantime. We don't know what it was like when he got home to Elizabeth, what their conversation was. I bet it was an amazing game of charades. Right? I'm, I'm sure that. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So her husband comes home, very different man. Not the same guy. He can't speak. I believe he's also deaf. Because if you look later, they try to say signs, they try to speak and he can't hear them. He's probably trying to write down things on paper for her. An angel showed up, we're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. A lot of this is, I know, crazy, confusing. They end up conceiving. And she kept herself hidden. Why? She was already facing disgrace. She was already facing shame. Do you think that if she all of a sudden told everyone, hey, I'm pregnant? They'd be like, you're a loony. More shame. Back then, they wore these huge robes. By five months, pregnant, then you start noticing it. Then it probably becomes believable. So then she goes out at five months, and then she actually can, can say, hey, I'm pregnant. See this? This is witness to it. It's amazing. I mean, she doesn't even tell her relative Mary for six months. The angel comes and has to tell her. So there was fear of disgrace, fear of shame and here she just verily simply says the Lord has done this to me it's a miracle I no longer have to bear the shame among my people and this is begins the story of all that God accomplishes through the person and work of Jesus as God breaks his silence for the first time <laughs> who in the in the past he just spoke through the prophets and guess what he's going to speak through his son now and this is setting it up. He's going to speak through Jesus Christ, who's going to be the God of all prophets, who's going to declare what salvation means and how the fracture and unrest and injustice and lack of peace and brokenness will all be mended and bound up in him alone. That the curse of sin, post-Genesis 3, he's going to take that sin and fulfill his promise that he made in Genesis 3 by crushing the head of the enemy, even as he bruises his heel. This is exactly what Luke wants us to see. Remember we said last week, his concern 
is that we don't just see Jesus. His concern is that you see what Jesus accomplishes. He wants you to see all that is accomplished through the bringing to life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants you to see that. He wants you to be pierced by that. He wants you to be changed by that. He wants you to have certainty of that. And here, here's what's incredible. As he's setting the stage as we see God's sovereign redeeming plan in the world through Jesus Christ. Catch this. He also wants us to see how he chooses common, ordinary, stumbling and falling, doubting the promises of God, not having perfect belief, doubting God's word at times, imperfect, sinful, not nailing it out of the park to just blow your mind that despite you, he's going to use you. Like, like this Jesus accomplishes you being grafted into a family, being put on mission to be a reflection of him to the ends of the earth, great commission, despite you. So listen, take great joy this morning that God chooses to use you despite you. Like that's the message of this. Like despite Zechariah's unbelief, despite his lack of believing God's word, despite of his unbelief in the promises of God, God still uses him. Why? Because it doesn't rest on his belief alone. It rests on Jesus Christ who fulfilled it all for him, who had perfect belief, who had perfect faith in God the Father, who did all those things for him, who perfectly upheld the righteous commands of God so that even when tomorrow you stumble and fall, doubt is promised to you. Even when you struggle, he goes, hey, you've got Jesus still. He's the one standing in your place. He's the one who's got you. He's the one who invaded human history. Cling to him and not just your goodness or how well you, you believe his promises or not believe his promises, or how well you adhere to God's word or not. Those are necessary things. Those are, I mean, just so weighty and important for our joy, for our growth. But at the end of the day, it's, it's him alone. It's what he accomplished for you. So take rest in Jesus and we're going to see and be blown away by that for a couple years in this book. Right? Some of you just got that. So if you're in here going, you know what? I'm not really a great pick for the kingdom. No, you're not. No one is. <laughs> I mean, and if you do think you are, do some serious soul searching. And come down from that hill of pride thinking... I know how the church should operate and exist. I know every answer to everything. I am God's gift to church at Bergen. You are not. I love you, but you are not. And I'm not either. I'm not God's gift to this place. You kidding me? This place is a train wreck in spite of me. God, in his grace, is doing something. Man, I, I can't tell you how many times I lay in bed, look at my wife and go, I can't believe what he's doing at cab. Look at me. And she's going, I know. Right? Yeah, I mean, look at you. Seriously. I mean, I mean, as funny as it, hey, wait a second, you're laughing. You're laughing at that. That's it is it is so it is it is mind blowing. That that none of us, I mean, I mean, just look at this room, so many different landing spots and dominations and places and backgrounds and experiences, and God throws us together by his grace to say, hey. Get on mission together. Hey, love Jesus. Believe in his person and work. I mean, be, be seen as some people who marvel at him and, and take his word seriously. And, and even though we're a big, goofy, beautiful mess, as we stumble and fall, we have him who is the head of the church, who is our righteousness, who is our redemption, who is our... It's all we have. It's all we have. Listen, no, no church is built well because of the people. It's in spite of the people. It's because he is the builder of the church. Matthew 16, that was his promise. Hey, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do it. And praise God that in spite of us, he still uses us. That yes, we give ourselves, we serve, we build up the body. God's wired us in ways that will divinely accomplish sanctification in the hearts of each of us as we grow and walk in maturity towards Christ-likeness. But it's all despite us. It's not because of us. Last thing I just want to ask you is where are you, where are you finding your rest for your soul today? 
I only had one place, as I talked at the beginning of my sermon about looking at ISIS, looking at Baltimore, looking at injustice, unrest, fracture. I only had one place to put my soul. The person who worked at Jesus. And we work hard, and we fight, and we pray, and we beg God. But at the end of the day, that's where our rest is. So that even if you're betrayed, even if your marriage goes a little bit left, even if your kid gets a bit nuts, even if you experience some hurt, you're okay. Because your rest is in Him. Let's ask God to help us. Jesus, thank you that you're a God who who invaded human history in the person of Jesus. Thank you for Luke chapter 1. Thank you that because of Luke chapter 1, we have hope. Thank you for this great declaration that, that you are not silent, that you have spoken. You've spoken in your word. But thank you that you say in 1 Corinthians that every promise has been made yes in Jesus. That that's why we can trust your promise. Pray for those this morning who might be struggling with unbelief. That God, you would grant them belief. That you would help them to hang tight and hold on to the promises that are in Christ. God, I pray that you would continue to humble us to a place where we just continue to marvel that you work among us despite us. That, God, you take common, ordinary people and in your kindness, you use them. That, God, you took an ordinary, common priest going about his day to be used to have a son, to be a forerunner to the Messiah of the world. God, I pray for those in this room this morning, God, who do not know you, do not have a relationship with you. God, that you might be good to them. You might reveal and show the beauty that is in the person and work of Jesus, just like you did to Luke, just like you've done to me and many in this room. God, show them the weight of mercy in light of their sin. Show them the, the, the steadfastness of Christ, the, the permanence of his death and resurrection for sin. Show them the security that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, as we celebrate the body that was broken and the blood that was shed through the Lord's Supper now, as we observe that, that it would be sweet to us, that we would enjoy the celebratory nature of it in Jesus' name. Amen.